Life to me is a really great opportunity to find solutions, to be creative, to solve some of these pressing environmental challenges so that we can sustain just these amazing landscapes we have in Europe that we sometimes take for granted. Life is zweifelsohne eine enorme Erfolgsgeschichte und ich möchte wirklich allen von Herzen danken, die dazu beigetragen haben und mit ihrem Einsatz, ihrem persönlichen Einsatz, Life wirklich mit Leben erfüllt haben. With the EU Green Deal, Europe has embarked on a massive project of change. And life is there ahead of us, paving the way for the concrete implementation of the deal. What I suggest to people or organizations that are thinking of submitting a proposal is not to be hesitant and, and go for it. Welcome to Life is 30, a podcast series brought to you by the Life Programme, which for 30 years now has led efforts to protect and preserve Europe's natural environment. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of this pioneering European Union programme, we're featuring some of the projects and talking to some of the people working in the Life Programme who conserve nature, fight climate change and enhance our quality of life. One of those people is Dr. Brendan Dunford, coordinator of the Burren Life Project in Ireland that ran between 2005 and 2010, a project that showed how biodiversity and farming can thrive alongside each other. So here we are standing in the Burren, which is this beautiful limestone landscape um, on the edge of Europe uh, along Ireland's midwestern coast. It's very famous for its biodiversity. So as I stand here, I'm surrounded by bees and the sound of birds, beautiful flowers like the Gentiana verna, the alpine gentian, bluebells, uh, beautiful woodlands. From what we know of this landscape, we know that it's been shaped by farming activity for 6,000 years. So I guess if we want to sustain this amazing heritage of biodiversity, we need to do it with the farmers. And one of the farmers involved in the Burren Life project was Michael Devoren, who's also chairman of the local Irish Farmers Association. How are you getting on, Michael? I'm Lovely very morning. well, Brendan, thank you. That's good. Uh, great day. It is indeed fabulous. It, it, at least the winter is behind us at this stage. The cattle are off the winter down in the summer land and yeah. we're able to take a breath. Yeah. What kind of work are you doing today? Doing a bit of fencing? Today it? I was doing a bit of fencing there, just trying to separate the, the cattle calves from through the fence after the winter. But you were very involved in the, um, the whole Burn Life project back in the day, weren't you? We were. You had lots and lots of questions. And like it all boiled down to how could we bring back the ancient farming practices using modern day technology? And that, it was, that was the background to looking for the life funding. Yeah. And I suppose the next one was how do we get farmers to buy into such a, uh, a scheme? Yeah. And that was the challenge. That life funding hadn't come then. I don't know where we'd be now. That was a turning point in how the burn was managed. What do you see yourself as being the challenges that lie ahead um, as a farmer and <coughs> for the likes of the, 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 um, the burn programme? Well, the biggest challenge to every farming society everywhere, including the Greenland that isn't a special area conservation, is to get the next generation of farmers interested in farming. Yeah, yeah. And the first premise to get anyone interested in doing anything is they have to be able to earn a living from it. And I've always said that it has to be looked at as managing the environment as a new product. 
In essence, the project paid the farmers of the Burren to deliver defined environmental objectives, maintaining their traditional system of seasonal cattle grazing while protecting the region's unique plant life. In the years that followed, Burren life evolved into the Burren programme, which now encompasses hundreds of farms in the Burren and serves as a model of what can be achieved when farmers and conservationists work together. Often when we think about biodiversity and farming, we think uh, these two just don't get on very well. Farming is viewed as being very destructive towards our environment, be it biodiversity or water quality or habitats. But actually, that's not always the case. And in most of our high nature value farm landscapes in Europe, it's because of farming that we have those special values in the first place. So what I'd say is the wrong type of farming is very destructive, but the right type of farming is really critically important. Dr. Brendan Dunford there. And thanks to him for sharing with us his work on the Burren Life Project. Preserving Europe's biodiversity has been at the heart of life since the programme was established to support the implementation of the Habitats Directive back in 1992. Stanley Johnson is considered one of the fathers of the Habitats Directive, a pillar of the EU's environmental legislation that protects more than 1,000 species and 200 different habitat types. Stanley was one of the first British officials to join the European Commission in 1973, and then, in the first direct elections to the European Parliament in 1979, he became an MEP. It was the year when the cornerstone of EU nature conservation legislation, the Birds Directive, was passed, and the environment was starting to grow in political importance. I was lucky enough to be elected as vice-chairman of the Parliament's Environment Committee. I would say that the Parliament was very sensitive to those issues. It was an area where the Parliament really felt it could make a difference, and um, we were certainly pleased to be able to advance through the Parliament, EU-wide, EEC-wide environmental proposals. Bear in mind, we didn't have the kind of powers which uh, the Parliament subsequently acquired. We were still very much advisory, and of course, we struggled to make our voice heard. Stanley Johnson served one five-year term as an MEP and then resumed his career in the Commission. When we were in the Parliament, we had you know, pushed for the Commission to come forward with measures to complement the birds directive and when i came back into the european commission my very first job was to write the commission's fourth environmental action program and in that context um you know i was lucky enough to be able to say well surely the time has come for the european commission for the community to adopt a measure which is parallel to the birds directive but which covers species and habitats even even beyond birds and that was firmly in the fourth environment action program which was adopted um, by the commission and by the council and by um, the Parliament, of course, and given that uh, that, that, uh, that commitment was there, I was able to seize the opportunity to say, look, the Parliament has asked for it, the Council has asked for it, the Commission now has no excuse for not drawing up that measure. Together with Stanley Johnson, Henriette Bastrop-Burke was part of the team working to shape and refine the draft Habitats Directive, a team that sought to go beyond traditional notions of species protection. Looking at natural habitats, ecosystems, as 
in relation to species and to restoration, conservation of species, was a new idea, a broader concept. And of course, it looked into difficult issues uh, that, as we saw during the negotiations, it was far more territorial uh, boundaries, where to put uh, the, that conservation effort, uh, responsibilities, all these new things that were coming up and that was part of the game for the following years. Not all member states wanted to play that game the same way. Henriette followed the negotiations day by day and as the legislation took shape, the Dutch presidency of the council seized the initiative. But the concerns of powerful voices in France had to be considered. The problem was a lobby that was extremely <laughs> strong the hunters <laughs> yes and and they actually said we don't really need anything because we're managing nature so well so we don't really need anything about you know, extra for that it was december 1991 and then just as is often still the case now negotiations in the council went well past bedtime Germany has, is being looked at as the rich, rich uncle, yeah? Uh, so please help us fund uh, whatever management measures and we need to do for... And Spain being the richest, having the greatest uh, potential and even actual uh, biodiversity or fairly untouched um, uh, uh, ecosystems. Uh, so there was like a quite quite a discussion between the two right to the very very end. So that was the problem, the issue on, uh, on at the council meeting in December, <laughs> and we were yeah that was quite quite a night, quite a night. One of the most important questions for the member states was making sure the new life instrument would be financially sustainable. It became absolutely clear that the political impetus for having this all-encompassing, tremendously important mechanism for nature and habitat protection would not see the light of day unless there were some fairly firm commitments by member states on the question of financing. And that is where, of course, life came in, as it did 30 years ago in 1992. There was a, a comprehensive instrument for financing and making sure that the member states had the money to finance some of the commitments which they were then going to take by virtue of the fact of the Habitats Directive. The pioneering idea in this directive is this idea of a coherent ecological network of special areas of conservation, uh, Natura 2000s, linking these different areas together and linking them also not only knowing that they exist and cooperate, but really in a very organic way making it a functional network of conservation areas. We cannot imagine that, that it had not been adopted, huh? this directive, and that the life program uh, would have gone up. So this is, it, it was a very, something to celebrate, of course. But it's not the end of the story. Thanks there to Henriette Bastrop-Burke and Stanley Johnson for their reflections. And indeed, it's not the end of the story. The Habitats Directive becomes law in May 1992. It establishes the legal basis for Natura 2000, a European network of protected areas for nature. And the LIFE programme is created at the same time. Now, let's hear from a European Commission official who's worked for 28 years in various senior management positions for the LIFE programme and who's contributed to making it such a roaring success. 
Angelo Celsi. I always use the image that Conrad Lawrence uh, describes in one of his most famous books, uh, where he tries to describe what is the imprinting uh, mechanism, whereby the little bird comes out of the egg and sees Conrad as the first living being or uh, moving being around him and decides that this is mom or dad. And the same happened with life. Uh, when life came around, it was a few hours after the Habitat Directive was adopted. Uh, so in my mind, I can see life looking at uh, the Habitat Directive and say, ah, Natura 2000, mom. In 30 years, life has committed more than 3 billion euros of co-financing to support nearly 2,000 nature and biodiversity projects. And Natura 2000 has become the largest network of protected areas in the world with over 5,400 sites having benefited from LIFE funding. Once we had identified the Natura 2000 sites, the next question is, now what do I do in this place? And LIFE very smartly came in, in help, financing thousands of individual management plans, site per site, so that later on the site managers would know exactly what to do in those sites. The small LIFE program, with its persistence and its smartness, if you want, did indeed make a huge difference, a much bigger difference for Natura 2000 than what could have been expected from its sheer size. In 1992, there were just 12 member states in what was about to become the European Union. And the greatest biodiversity was in the southern part of Europe. But just three years later, life encountered a whole new dimension. When Finland and, uh, and Sweden came in, uh, they added up this Nordic component where the wilderness is still an essential element that does exist. Old growth forests, places where you can lose yourself, where you can walk without having connection with your smartphones for kilometers. The next one was the enlargement east. And this one brought in, just to give you uh, the feeling, uh, with Romania, thousands of bears and uh, the dynaric uh, forest, uh, a forest that spreads across all the Balkans practically from Slovenia down to, uh, to Greece, uh, uninterrupted, came into, uh, into the European Union with lynx, wolves, bears and, and so on. We had new habitat type, we had stepping zones which we didn't have before. So that, the challenge was really amazing. We had to adapt our legislation, we had to adapt life uh, to cater for needs that were completely different and in some of those countries the governance behind nature conservation was still very much to be shaped. And so life did one thing which, is, which has always been able to do very powerfully, a capacity building. Angelo Salsi there, our thanks to him for his contribution. Capacity building, as Angelo mentioned, is one of the many strengths of what is a relatively small EU programme, but one that can maximise its impact, as is the case with our next project. The Clean Sea Life project in Italy involved more than 170,000 people, taking part in different activities, cleaning beaches, engaging fishermen, and working with scuba divers to remove 112 tonnes of marine litter. On top of that, the project contributed to a new national law against marine litter. Clean Sea Life triumphed at the Life Awards 2022, winning in the Environment category and the Citizens Prize 
voted by thousands of Europeans. After the awards ceremony, the project manager Eleonora de Sabata paid tribute to everyone who made the project such a success. Our motto was all together for a cleaner sea. So this prize is really dedicated to all the thousands of volunteers that bent their knees and their backs to collect, to pick up uh, rubbish from the sea. And we're literally thousands of people, thousands of volunteers who put in thousands of work days into cleaning up the sea. So this price is all for them. Yes! Clean Sea Life tested several models for waste disposal with local maritime authorities. But the project didn't stop there. It engaged institutions at national level to entrench the project's work into the Salvamare law, literally saving the sea. And it was passed in May this year, a source of pride for Eleonora and her team. Yeah, we helped. We certainly helped because we tested the law as it was being drafted. So we invited the mem a member of parliament who was drafting a law to come to the harbour. So she spoke with the fishermen, with, um, with the local authorities, with the waste management company. She made sure that all these information were fed up into the law and she made it better. She made it into a law that is actually uh, readily implemented on the grounds. The project prioritised communications activities, including a prevention and awareness campaign focused on younger generations. During Clean Sea Life, we involved over 5,000 students and we trained many teachers as well, because it, it, you really need to start from, from young children to make them understand that they are polluters as well. You know, toys and little things when they, you know, forget things around on the beach or throw things um, around, that really contributes to, to littering. And of course, they are not the main one, but they need to start from the very young age to think about these things. And then they will grow up to become more uh, conscious consumers and citizens. Eleonora de Sabata there. Thanks for her insight. Now, to round off this first episode, we spoke to the European Commissioner responsible for life, Virginia Sinkovicius, whose portfolio covers the environment, oceans and fisheries. We asked him to share with us what makes him so proud of the LIFE programme after 30 years. First of all, you know, local communities' involvement. Life does a tremendous job of bringing communities together. And uh, as we said, farmers and, and nature protection, fisheries uh, and, and marine protection, actually showing that those economic activities can be a success story uh, doing it within the planetary boundary. Secondly, you know, actually life is about restoring. And I think this is a very important aspect which we tend to forget that we need to do much more effort to, to, to restore. And, and I'm very proud that life actually does that and, and our life projects were the greatest ambassadors of European values. The Commission recently extended an invitation to Ukraine, which is not an EU member state, to join the LIFE programme a reflection of the country's needs and the fact that protecting nature doesn't stop at the EU's external borders. 
first of all, we see the tragic loss of, of human lives in Ukraine, innocent uh, women, uh, children, uh, men die every day, cities are being destroyed, and that will require uh, enormous efforts, rebuilding, uh, rebuilding Ukraine, rebuilding their infrastructure. Um, but uh, on the other hand, we also cannot ignore what's happening as regards the nature of Ukraine. We see threats of basically ecosystem as, of Azovsi being uh, totally, totally um, destroyed. Uh, huge land plots are being burned, uh, including including uh, forests, ecosystems, and habitats. So, of course, that will require also a tremendous effort helping uh, restoring uh, Ukraine's uh, beautiful nature. And I think life can be an excellent tool for that. Actually also bringing Ukraine closer to EU, uh, but uh, helping uh, Ukrainian uh, people, helping uh, uh, them to, 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 to rebuild their beautiful country. And now, with the Commission leading the implementation of the European Green Deal and the push for a zero-carbon future, life can play an important role supporting this flagship initiative in the coming years. At the end of the day, what will count is actually how we treated our nature, our ecosystems. And if we keep on losing our ecosystems, is it oceans, sea basins, or soils, or, or our precious forests, we won't be able to, to achieve any of our targets as regards the climate change. So I think those numbers that we are so focused about, uh, you know, as regards decarbonization, 2030 goals, and technologies that are going to help them are important, but they are Im uh, impossible to reach without, uh, of course, uh, taking care of our ecosystems. And, and life uh, gives that uh, uh, care, um, gives that care through the hands of, 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 of local communities, public authorities uh, in different corners of European Union. So life has a crucial uh, role to play. Not, uh, you know, for 10 more years or 20 more years, but I think for many, many more years to come. Verinius Sinkevicius there, Commissioner with Responsibility for the LIFE programme, bringing us to the end of this podcast with his reflections on LIFE's work, past, present and future. So now you've heard a bit about LIFE and how it began. In the following podcasts of this LIFE is 30 series, we'll be looking at some of those success stories the Commissioner was talking about. We'll be hearing from groundbreaking life projects, developing green technologies and working to make the principles of the circular economy part of everyday life. We'll be charting the development of the LIFE programme as it grew from its roots in nature back in 1992 to embrace climate action and many other urgent environmental issues. So join us soon for the next episode. For now... Thanks to all my guests, and, as you'll find out in this series, life, it's what you make it. Dear listeners, thanks for tuning in to Life is 30, the podcast series celebrating 30 years of the LIFE programme, the EU's funding instrument for the environment and climate action. Life is 30 is brought to you by SENEA, the European Climate Infrastructure and Environment Executive Agency. Research and production by Margarita Sforza and Claire Taylor. Our thanks to all the members of the LIFE community.